1: All right. So we got some numbers from General Motors, obviously much watched both for their size and scope, but also given everything that's going on in the world, including trade and obviously interest rate cuts. And the latter was what the CFO, that is Divya Surya Devara, talked to our own David Weston about earlier from Detroit. Here's what she had to say.
2: Our outlook for the industry, the auto industry overall, is north of $17 uh, million. That's, uh, as you know, David, it's a very healthy level um, to begin with. And on the margin, uh, when you see cuts, it's obviously going to help the consumer overall, um, and it'll help auto loan payments. So to the extent that um, our vehicles are financed, it's going to be a tailwind from that perspective. But we remain constructive on the industry at uh, $17 million or higher, and uh, within that, the truck segment as well. Remaining constructive on the industry, that is the key takeaway, and shareholders uh, certainly would agree. And joining us to break all of this down uh, with some good balance sheet and income statement uh, analysis is Garrett Nelson. He's Senior Equity Research Analyst from CFRA Research Garrett, great to have you. You know, you heard in the intro when we spoke with GM CFO um, that things look good, particularly, I would argue, the truck segment. Walk me through your key takeaways regarding that.
3: Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, What we're seeing really is strength for them in crossovers and SUVs, not necessarily trucks. Uh, They've actually lost market share in the pickup truck market. So far this year, uh, pretty significant market share with uh, Fiat Chrysler with the Ram pickup um, is, is the primary uh, um, culprit for for that. So they, they've they've um, they've done well though in, in trucks and SUVs, and I think that was really the driver of a better than expected quarter in uh, in Q2. It helped drive better results for the um, GM North America segment.
1: And so what else jumped out at you, even sort of tonally, because I feel like we didn't hear a ton uh, about trade. We just talked about sort of the interest rates. We heard about that from the, from the CFO and how that's playing through. What else sort of jumped out at you from the commentary?
3: Well, trade is a big issue. And I think with, with what was just announced with the uh, yeah. plan to implement the new tariffs on China, the stock has basically gave back all of its gains for the day it's especially important for GM because they're the most levered um, U.S. auto manufacturer to China. 44% of all their vehicle sales last year uh, were in China. So um, that's a big concern going forward. And uh, the stock's had a pretty nice run recently. It's up uh, over 20% year-to-date. And we just don't see that continuing here, um, especially with these escalated risks. So um, we uh, uh, reiterated our sell rating and. We have a 12-month price target of
2: $35. Talk to me about that price target with the sell rating. The sell rating, uh, you know, I, I understand from your commentary, you've increased your 12-month price target by about $3 to that 35 What's behind that?
3: Sure. Um, so that implies about five and a half times our 2020 earnings estimate. Uh, the problem with GM is we just don't see significant earnings growth going forward um looking ahead to to 2020 if you look at all every market they're in they've lost market share in every single market so far this year with the exception of south america so even the u.s even their north american sales are down they're losing share there um and uh you know while their margins are holding up better than expected they're they're still down um so we just don't see what the driver is going to be you know looking ahead to 2020 and historically Late in the economic cycle, um, which is where we think we are today, given that we're in year 10 of the, of the bull market, is, has not been a very good time to buy um, auto equities. Historically, the best time to buy them has been very early in the cycle.
1: All right. Only about a minute left, Garrett. How does this figure into the broader um, auto sector? What are you hearing from the other big names, both domestically and internationally?
3: Sure. We're seeing a lot of, um, auto manufacturers cut their guidance. The fact that GM didn't cut their guidance is, is a positive. Um, you know, you, their closest comp, Ford, reported, uh, last week and, and, and put out some pretty weak guidance and the, the shares traded down significantly. But, um, we just don't like GM because they're, they're so levered to China. And also, you know, in the U.S. market, while they're doing a pretty good job and, And the five plant closures they announced are helping support margins. Um, We're so late in the cycle here. And uh, we just don't think uh, uh, the consumer conditions or market conditions are going to improve from where we are today for the consumer.
1: All right. Garrett Nelson is Senior Equity Research Analyst at CFRA Research. He joined us on the phone from the nation's capital, uh, taking a quick look at GM, that stock Taylor, uh, trading off about seven-tenths of 1%. Interesting. It has definitely yep. Yep. taken a leg down uh, <laughs> oh. along with the rest of the market along here. Along
2: with the rest of the market. The one thing that stood out to me, though, from our Live blog is that GM is highlighting their North American profits continue to remain strong. This is my theme of the last two years, U.S. versus rest of the world. They're really looking at the second half for new pickups, new SUVs. That will hit the market Cost cuts will go to the bottom line. Lower steel prices, reduce expenses. That will help the bottom line. Again, we'll have to wait and see.
3: Imagine how the world could be. So very fine. So happy together. All right. Well, let's
1: get a little bit into the world of private equity. One of our experts back with us, Paul Aversano, is Managing Director of the Private Equity Services Group at Alvarez and Marsal. Global practice leader of the firm's Transaction Advisory Group. Here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Welcome back. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. All right. So what a great time to be talking about private equity at a time <laughs> Jason, where it's
2: always a great time is. for you to be talking That's true. about private. I can't equity. get away
1: from it. I do love talking about it, but it's very, very courant as they say, especially coming off of a couple nights of Democratic debates. Elizabeth Warren has put private equity firmly uh, back in the spotlight, probably in a way politically, Paul, we haven't seen since 2012 when Mitt Romney ran for president. What are people saying about this latest salvo from the political world?
4: It's interesting. Um, Obviously, nobody likes putting put in that negative light, but it, it, it to be quite frank, you know, I talk to so many different private equity clients, both here in the U.S. and in other parts of the world. It's uh, so far not an overly big concern. Mm-hmm. Um, I think r- they believe realistically there's not much of a chance of something like that passing, is what I'm hearing. Although there is a risk of maybe various components of it making its way into legislation some way down the road.
2: One of the big things we heard from Jay Powell yesterday was just basically consumer confidence is good, but business spending is down. Businesses are uncertain. They're not really quite sure what to make of all this trade stuff. How much do the trade tariffs, the day-to-day volatility, the uncertainty fold into your world?
4: that's a great question if you just look in the last 24 hours we had the 25 basis point interest rate drop in the last 25 minutes we've had 300 mil- <laughs> 300 billion you know, 10% tariffs on on 300 billion of additional chinese goods so you know i i've referred to this periodically as what I call the vortex of volatility, because not just those two things, but think about Brexit, think about North Korea, think about Iran, all these things create uncertainty. And there's two sides of that when it comes to private equity, one of which, and I've actually heard certain clients say this to me, they almost welcome some of the volatility to help bring down record asset prices and valuations. So there's almost a little bit of a relief, some of this, so they they can deploy capital more easily. On the other side of the coin, though, nobody, particularly the markets likes uncertainty. And I think even with Jay Powell, what he said yesterday, just added more uncertainty to the mix. And and, and that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about
1: valuations, excuse me, um, when you think about valuations for the sponsors, for the private equity sponsors, especially as they've been competing so much uh, with strategics for, for deals, are they starting to come
4: down? At all, or are we still in a very robust time? We're still in a very robust time. The biggest issue facing our private equity clients today at Alvarez and Marcel, because I'm with them all the time, is competition for deals. And there's always someone so far uh, willing to pay up, and that's a problem.
2: Where is the competition strongest where you guys have decided we're not going to play, it's too expensive?
4: You know, unfortunately, most private equity funds don't have that luxury. Right. Um, you know, they're, they're in the business of buying and selling companies, so they really can't sit on the sidelines too long. Uh, they, they have to transact. And I think you have pressure on one side to deploy all this dry dry powder, and on the other side, you have to realize your investments, and the holding period of some of these investments has been growing. So it's hard to say. There really is no specific area. They have to deploy capital. So at some point – You know, the market has to adjust to what the new normal is. And so when you think about sort of
1: ranking the worries for a private equity investor, you know, think about geopolitics, think about rates based on uh, Taylor's excellent analysis of what we saw uh, this week from Jay Powell. You think about Elizabeth Warren, you think
4: about valuations like. What are the top two worries for a private equity manager? Clearly, the top two. The first being competition for deals and asset valuations. That is by far and away, everyone will say, you know, we've just got blown out of the last three or four deals we've Mm -hmm. tried to to bid on. We just can't transact, and that's becoming, you know, more and more problematic. That is by far number one. Number two is just broadly the uncertainty in the markets. Because, you know, what you may pay for a business today, the world three to five years from now, when you go to sell that investment, will likely be a very different place. Yeah. how do you manage that. So, what are you going to do today to manage that risk three to five years down the road? Those two factors—the uncertainty and the competition for for deals uh, in the market—are probably the two biggest issues facing private equity today. So maybe it's just catnip
1: for me because I love both politics and private equity and talking about both. But it, just going back to that nexus for a second. You rightly pointed out, and I've heard the same thing, that people say, look, if if all of this went through, it's game over. Like, the industry doesn't exist. And we don't think that there's that much of an existential crisis. But as you look through the proposal, the Warren proposal, and you think about you know making sure there are fewer fees, you think about more transparency in general, you think about making the firms and the funds a little bit more responsible for the things that they ultimately own, what's in there – that you think from your perspective or you hear from the managers
4: involved that they say, well, that could happen? Yeah. Well, I think you raise a very good point. A couple of these things are probably not bad ideas and will help tighten up the industry a little bit. It's become more mature and therefore subject to more regulation. So so some of these things probably aren't a bad idea. But the thing that seems to get lost a lot and what's important for your listeners is that, you know. The Stop Wall Street Looting Act. Just think of that name, right? Everyone seems to think private equity is just a bunch of these Wall Street guys looting. And it's not. What, what they don't understand Step is who are, the, who are the limited or, partners in these yeah. funds? It's those investments. It's the pensions. It's the teachers. It's the postal workers. It's the university endowments, the exact people that they're trying to help and depend on those private equity returns, which have delivered more than any other asset class. And I think that gets lost a lot. And I think people really, you know, there's two sides of it. Yes, there's the, the general partner who's, who's behaving a certain way. But look who the investors are in the LP community. So, so that's important.
2: Those returns that you just mentioned justify fees. How much pressure are those LPs putting on you to lower fees?
4: Well, that's not really a question for me. I mean, I'm, I'm in the professional services industry. I, I'm not in the private equity industry. So um, in, in general, mm-hmm. from what I understand... Um, I, I don't know if it's so much pressure to lower fees, but it's other ways to create value. They may Mm -hmm. pressure for co-invest opportunities. And actually, many of these limited partners are actually doing direct investing themselves to avoid the fees entirely. Yeah. That's a whole different ball game, but right. Yeah, it does feel like
1: there continue to be a lot of uh, conversation about that. Some really good uh, insights, as always, and some good nuances as we try and understand where this goes from here. Politics is not exactly a game of subtleties, so we'll see how much of this gets picked up on as we get closer and closer and hotter and hotter uh, into this debate around Wall Street private equity. And the Democratic Party, for lack of a better term, Uh, Paul Aversano is Managing Director of the Private Equity Services Group and Alvarez and Marsal, Global Practice Leader of the firm's Transaction Advisory Group here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Always great. All right, we've had a chance to dig into this story a bit this week, and i got to say I love it. It's my must-read. It's the cover story of Bloomberg Businessweek, and you should definitely check out the animation online for this. The static cover, cool. The animation, even cooler. Felix Gillette co-wrote the story it is about the streaming wars, 2020. It's not just about politics anymore. Joel Weber is the editor of Bloomberg Week. He and Felix are both with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Felix, I feel like there's been a long run-up yes. to this battle, but now it's happening.
5: Yes. Now it's time to get the popcorn <laughs> and watch everybody slaughter each other, hey. murder <laughs> each other. That could have been yeah. the cover line. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's going to be great. I mean, you have... Disney Plus coming out this fall. You have Apple's new streaming service coming out this fall. Then you're going to have HBO Max coming out early next year. And then NBC's streaming service, too. I think that smells like competition. Yes. Everybody wants a piece of Netflix. Yes. All the giants at once. And so when you think about what's going to ultimately
1: differentiate... A lot of this has been about, well, who's going to spend more on content? Who's going to get the, the best shows, the best people? Clearly, that's an issue. But your story points out it's more complicated than that in a lot of ways.
5: Yeah. I mean, it's a totally different dynamic between these companies and the subscriber. I mean, it's this big battle for subscribers in the old world. It was there was a lot of friction, a lot of uh, it was difficult to cancel your. Yeah, you call your cable, cable company. Oh, and be, they and wear it you down. Like just an hour, you might to, lose yeah. your phone, your yeah. broadband. You're like, never mind, I'll <laughs> just keep paying. It's easier now. It's like, yeah, uh, you get sick of a service, you just cancel it and then subscribe to something else. And people are very willing to hop around. Um, you know, Netflix has been around the longest. They have the lowest churn rate of any of these streaming services. But uh, you know, it's it, it, I always think of HBO that they did so well for so long in cable one night a week. We, we do Sundays, mm-hmm. you know? And now it's like, you don't do one night a week. This stuff is like the air people breathe. It's yep. all the time.
2: So if customers are elastic, we can move at mm-hmm. any moment. Who starts cutting first to match my five ninety nine? dollars and if I'm not willing to pay more than that?
5: Yeah, I think the cost is going to be crazy. Uh, the pressure on HBO, which is now charging $15 a month for HBO Now, Disney Plus is coming out, it's going to be $7 a month, $70 for a year, that's like what I spend on babysitting in like a couple hours, I'm like, yeah, just give me that service, I mean, how long can that entertain my kids for, like pretty long, and I think, uh, yeah, Netflix, just look what happened to them, they raised their prices a couple dollars, and boom, they lost subscribers for the first time in the U.S. Uh, in the second quarter in like eight years, Here's my favorite stat from your story, which yes. is the Netflix marketing budget cost the same as HBO's programming budget. Yes. $2.4 last year, which is insane. Just on marketing. Just but on marketing. Also for, for a whole network's programming, right? Yes. So it speaks to the cost here. So when the numbers are that big, like how, how do you win? I think you just got to keep throwing things at consumers. I think what we're going to see is you're going to see less shows on these streaming services that go five or six or seven or eight seasons, and you're going to see two seasons, people get hooked, and then boom, they'll cancel the service and just... Throw that money at something new because, you know, once you've stuck around for a couple seasons, people are going to less likely to cancel the service. Whereas like they'll cancel the show you made. So they'll cancel the show because they've got the subscriber. Exactly. And throw that money just trying to get somebody else's subscriber. So I think you'll see just a lot of new uh, new shows coming on And yeah Crazy marketing campaigns To try to get attention And and what do you think The saturation is For like How many services
3: One <laughs> person yeah, can it's have That's a great point
5: That's what everybody Wants to know Are the people Going to subscribe To two To three To four yeah. uh, You know I think right now You're seeing people Yeah two or three uh, beyond that, uh, I don't know, and that's what the problem here is. You're gonna are all of these services gonna survive? It's kind of hard to imagine.
2: And how long will shareholders tolerate unprofitability to get the subscribers they need?
5: I think that, uh, you know, they're going to have to wait it out a couple years. Disney has already said, yep, yeah, we're not going to even think about making a profit on this till 2024. Yeah. So five years. We'll yeah. talk about it later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wish I could say that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, half a decade from now. We'll be we'll be back. Check in with us. And we'll be spending a billion dollars a year until then. Yeah, Bob right Iger will still be the CEO. Yeah. He'll still have to answer the questions. Yeah. All right.
1: Felix Gillette. He is a writer for Bloomberg Businessweek, co-author of The Cover Story with Jerry Smith. It's all about... About the streaming wars. Stay tuned indeed. Joel Weber is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. They're both here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. I need a dollar, dollar,
5: dollar. That's what I need. Well,
1: I All right, well, As I mentioned, Taylor, we got to talk about my must-read in the magazine, but if there was second place, this would be my second (laughs) most must-read. It's definitely uh, top of the charts for you. Katie Greifeld, she's tops. She's here, our FX and rates reporter. Her story, Chaotic Messaging Makes It Hard to Decode, Trump's Dollar Policy – It was a smart story when they decided to do it. Got even smarter yesterday after the Fed meeting. Katie's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Hi.
6: Hi. Thanks for having me.
1: All right. So the dollar, help us make sense of where this is all going in a chaotic week. And as you say, the messaging already has been a little muddied.
6: Well, Trump's Fed criticism and his dollar complaints go hand in hand. The fact that. You know, the Fed hasn't been as quick to act as Trump would like, whereas, you know, we've seen easing or hints of easing around the globe. That's keeping the dollar supportive since U.S. yields are already so high relative to the rest of the world. I want to
2: get to your great story, which in our TV show, Bloomberg Business Week was my pick of the week. First, walk me through the massive move in the dollar
6: yesterday. So, as... We all know Powell had a little bit of trouble communicating exactly what he meant. So they cut rates, 25 basis points expected. But the surprise came during the press conference when he said this isn't necessarily the start of a prolonged easing cycle. This is a mid-cycle adjustment, and the dollar took that and ran with it. Uh, FX traders clearly took that as, you know, a one-and-done sort of situation, which would, again, keep U.S. yields supportive relative to the rest of the world. And... Let's turn back to your story, which was great. I really
2: liked it in in Bloomberg Business Week. The, The whole point is that Trump wants a weaker dollar. And why? I mean, right, this comes back to trade. It comes back to manufacturing. How does this help him?
6: Right. So a strong dollar objectively has a lot of benefits for the U.S. This commitment not to devalue the currency is why the dollar is the reserve status of choice. It's why trading partners all around the world park their cash in U.S. treasuries. But the point that Trump has really latched onto, which has economic bearing, is that it makes U.S. exports less competitive abroad, and that really crimps U.S. manufacturers. And that's a big part of his base.
1: And so where does it go from here? Because as you've alluded to, we hear, and and actually we just heard from Doug, we'll hear from Larry Kudlow tomorrow. I would imagine we will be asking him uh, about this very thing. He'll be talking about uh, the jobs report. But clearly, this is a key. The dollar is a key part of the broader economic strategy for the United States. Steve Mnuchin, also maybe not completely on side. Why the disagreement in your estimation?
6: Well, so the next step from here, what people are watching would be U.S. intervention into currency markets, right. which would be drastic. The U.S. usually acts in concert with other nations when it intervenes in markets, which is already rare. So to see the U.S. go it alone would be, you know, it would be wild. And... uh Our reporting by our White House colleagues has uh, borne out that Mnuchin and Kudlow are really opposed to taking that step for that reason. But then you have trade hawks like Peter Navarro who are pushing for it. Uh, So it really really depends on, you know, which camp of the White House Mm -hmm. you're talking to. A stronger dollar and higher rates relative to the rest of the world means
2: foreign money has been flowing into the U.S. What would a weaker dollar mean? Has any of the data started to change?
6: Well, foreign holdings right now are at a record high as of May for Treasury. So this hasn't dented appetite yet, but that'll be important to watch. It's not so much a weaker dollar. It's more if the U.S. embarks on a sustained campaign to devalue the dollar. That's what would get people nervous. That would really impact demand if you knew the asset you're holding, the currency, is just going to be steadily falling.
1: And so as you have talked to your sources on various desks, uh, FS. FX desks, excuse me, currency desks across Wall Street. How worried are they about this? I mean, this feels top of mind at this moment.
6: Absolutely. You know, before last Friday, it was sort of a fun talking point, you know, a way to pass the time. But after Trump explicitly said last Friday that he hasn't ruled out currency intervention, this is it's not yet a base case, but it's a much bigger risk in Strategist mind than it was a week ago. It's
1: certainly something that they now have to model out. Katie Greifeld, great to catch up with you. It's a terrific story in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Check that out on newsstands or check out the story on Bloomberg.com or on the terminal. Easy to find because it's one of the most read.
5: I'm driving my car.
2: I turn on the hey, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going
1: to drive you home? Honey, please, how do the drive
2: Drive on
1: Excuse me, I want to drive
0: Just drive,
1: Just drive, baby It's the question that
4: drives us This is the drive to the close That punk music will drive us till the dawn On Bloomberg Radio
1: and it's time for The Drive to the Close. Marcy McGregor, Senior Investment Strategist at Bank of America Private Bank, joins us on the phone from New York City. Marcy, great to have you with us.
0: Thank you for having me on the co- on the radio today.
1: All right. So what a week it has been so far, and we're not even done with it. Let's talk about yesterday. Can we talk about Jay Powell and what he said after that decision and what you made of it?
0: Yes, no shortage of things to talk about this week. The key words I heard from Powell yesterday was that this is a mid-cycle adjustment. Those are powerful words. Uh, To me, this was an insurance cut against rising risks particularly outside of the U.S., and I think we're seeing that today with the re-escalation of trade tensions. But I think Powell's also focused on extending the expansion and also supporting inflation. Inflation peaked last summer, and we've been coming in consistently below the Fed's target. So I think this is less about slowing data in the U.S. and more about insurance against rising risks. Uh, our house view is that you get two more cuts this year, September and October, 25 bips each.
2: Did that House view of two more cuts this year change in any way two hours ago when the president tweeted about additional 10% tariffs?
0: It hasn't changed, but I think this reinforces the case for additional cuts, and we've seen that in the market reaction today. The market, uh, you know, this morning was uh, the odds of a rate cut in September and October had dramatically decreased, and then we saw those odds really pick up after the tweet this afternoon. So I think it bolsters the case for two more cuts this year.
1: And so can you help us synthesize, Marcy, sort of what we've heard from policymakers, what we heard from j Powell, and what we've heard from companies, generally speaking, as it relates to earnings and the commentary that they've given, especially their forward guidance?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So My overarching view is that the U.S. economy is on this dual track. The dominant track is driven by a strong consumer, and we're seeing that in earnings. What we've seen so far this year is we have a strong consumer economy. Also, part of that first track is small businesses. So small business optimism is at some of the strongest readings in the survey's history. These are the biggest drivers of the U.S. economy. The the second track, as I think of it, is, is what we're seeing flowing. And that's manufacturing. You know, we saw PMIs this morning getting closer to 50. They've really been declining since last summer. And CEO and large business optimism, that's where we're seeing the weight of the trade war, I think, really dragging, particularly on CapEx. You know, my view is second quarter earnings, it really feels a lot like as we headed into first quarter, where expectations were so low. And I think, once again, we'll get a healthy beat there. I think estimates, frankly, were taken down too far. But CapEx is what I'm watching. CapEx has been anemic. And I think it's in pause mode until we get some further clarity on trade. You know, last quarter, capex was the slowest growth that we've seen since third quarter of 2017 i'm watching this closely because today's escalation of trade tensions will only weigh further on large business confidence in my view
2: marcy if capex is slowing translate that over into your world of investment strategy what sectors do we or do we not buy based on your capex view
0: yeah, so my you know my view of sectors and I like to take a little bit of a longer term view because once again I do think we are on this dual track economy that is driven by the consumer. I would actually say post crisis we've seen three mini economic cycles in the US and for all the talk of being late cycle Our view is that we are actually setting up for a fourth mini-cycle within this expansion. It's happening. It's just happening slowly. So what does this mean for markets? Our, Our overarching theme is quality. And for me, that means U.S. versus international equities. That means large cap over small. But when I think about sectors... I like technology. There's a lot of long-term reasons I like technology. Innovation, think, you know, cloud computing, artificial intelligence, automation. But tech also really has strong balance sheets. It's the only sector with more cash than debt. And if you think about automation as a takeaway from these rising trade tensions, tech is going to be a long-term beneficiary. Uh financials is a place where in the near term we see buybacks picking up steam, but the bigger picture they have less of a regulatory overhang. And then industrials. I know I just teed up a picture of slowing PMI and and tensions weighing on growth, but think about defense. And certainly we can't deny that there's rising geopolitical tensions globally. Industrials, particularly aerospace and defense, can benefit from that, while other areas may lag because of the slowing CapEx.
1: And where will you see, as you pointed out, uh, Marcy, we have all seen a lot of strength in the consumer, and that dichotomy that you, that you described was was really spot on. Where will you start to see weakness in the consumer? What data points do you look at that will give you a signal there? What's the canary in the coal mine?
0: Yeah, great question. So I watch really closely consumer confidence, of course. UMichigan you, you consumer confidence has really been favorable since the start of 2017, and there's actually been really little variation in that reading since then. So I watch that closely. We're seeing the most strength in the lower income consumers. So when I think of a sector like discretionary, they're going to benefit, in my view, from a dovish Fed, but also... The healthy consumer at the lower income side, so I like discount over luxury, probably, I would say. But I'll watch confidence closely because so far we haven't seen the impact of the trade war. Uh, If you look at spending nationwide in areas where are heavy in terms of farming and areas most exposed to trade, we actually haven't seen a slowdown in spending. So weakness uh, in the consumer in those areas, I would watch geographic areas, I would watch closely because that would point to the trade war weighing on the consumer. And we have not seen any signals of that at this point.
1: Great stuff. Really good context. Thank you so much, Marcy McGregor, Senior Investment Strategist at Bank of America Private Bank. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.